The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing with me for the reading of God's Word this morning, continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, turning particularly to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. This is God's word. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, or beginning to sink rather, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon our time this morning in his word. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you this morning and we plead with you now. Send your spirit to us that he might enliven the words that you have spoke to us here and that he might apply them to our hearts and our minds that we might see with greater clarity and with greater joy, the glory and the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, now with one petition. Show us your Son, we ask. In his name we pray. Amen. I don't know very much about art, particularly art theory. But one thing I do know is that one of the essential elements of any piece of art, really, at least any good piece of art, is the element known as contrast. You see, contrast is that juxtaposition of difference, which is used to intensify the properties of any given piece of visual art. You see, as one element of the artistic piece is set over against the other, you're able to discern with greater clarity, the unique properties of of both of the elements. You see, contrast 
is used by the artist in a painting or a sculpture or whatever he's making uh, to bring out these elements to accentuate their meaning and to contribute, really, building up to the meaning of the whole piece of art that he's working on. Contrast is essential to art. And as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 14 this morning, and we look at the text selected before us here for our sermon, what we see is that Matthew is presenting to us a portrait, if you will, of the Savior. And he is presenting that portrait to us in great uh, beauty and accuracy, and he's doing so by painting this picture of Jesus using this element of contrast. You note what he's doing here. This section of the text, we see, or in this section of the text rather, we see Jesus doing several things that seem, just on the face of them, to be almost contradictory. We see, on the one hand, a man who is seeking the face of God for hours in prayer. It seems dependent, as it were. Upon the work of his father, seeking his father, seeking to commune with him, seeking his assistance, crying out to him as one of us might. And on the other hand, we see a man who, when he finds himself at great distance from his disciples across the sea, he simply walks on the water to get to them. Dependence. Command. And then, as the text continues, we see, in contrast to this great authority, this great dominion, this great command that Jesus seems to have over all of creation, a great deal of compassion that he shows here to his disciples, who, even confronted as they are with this glorious act of Christ, still find themselves doubting that he is able to keep them safe from the storm. You see, as we step back for a moment and we look at this picture that Matthew has presented for us, we see that he has drawn out these various activities of Christ. He has used them to highlight uh, attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he does so, and he juxtaposes these things against one another, what he does for us is he presents for us a beautiful and comprehensive picture of the Savior and his work in this world. Indeed, what he shows us here is the depth and the breadth of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does so here by displaying for us his true messianic identity, showing forth to us everything that we need to know about him, really. We see his conscious dependence on the Father for his earthly ministry. We see his command over all of creation demonstrated. And ultimately, and most beautifully here at the end of the passage, we see his compassion upon his doubting and fragile people. And as we step back for a moment, we look upon this picture painted for us by Matthew. We must be led this morning, just as the disciples were here at the end of the passage, to cry out, And say with him, truly, this is the Son of God. As we begin to examine the text before us, let's begin by looking at verses 22 through 24. And seeing the Son of God's conscious dependence upon his Father. 
You note here in verse 22 uh, that we find Jesus really uh, dismissing the crowds, dismissing his disciples. You see, if you remember from last week, as we heard so uh, helpfully exposited for us by Pastor Aachen, Jesus has just got done performing a miracle. He's just got done feeding the 5,000. And Matthew doesn't tell us this specifically, but if you were to jump over to the Gospel of John, you would know that the people reacted to Jesus' miracle by trying to make him king. You see, they saw what he did there. They saw how he divided the fish, the loaves, and he spread it out, and he was able to sustain this large group of people in such a miraculous way. And, and they think to themselves, this would be a great person to have as our leader. And they try to... Make him the king. And in John's gospel, we see that that's why he dismisses them. That's why he withdraws from them. That's why he draws away from the crowds. We don't have that here, but it's important to note that. You see, he withdraws from the crowds. He withdraws from his disciples here at the beginning of the chapter. But then he draws near to his father. You see what he's doing here in verse 23. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. In one sense, Jesus is merely practicing what he's preached in the Sermon on the Mount, hasn't he? Remember how he taught his disciples to pray. To go into the inner room, into your closet, he says. He exhorts us there to private prayer. And here, he does that. He separates himself from everyone else, even his most intimate companions, the disciples, for the sake of praying. Now, you may think to yourself, well, that's not all that that unusual for Jesus in the Gospels. And that's true, broadly considered. For instance, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus regularly gets away from people to pray. It's almost a theme there. He's always drawing himself, or withdrawing himself, rather, for the sake of communion with the Father. But in the Gospel of Matthew, this is actually an exceedingly rare occurrence. It only happens in one other place in the Gospel. You could probably guess it if I let you sit here for long enough, but I'll tell you anyway. It happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, these are the only two places in all the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus intentionally removes himself from the crowds, removes himself from the disciples for the sake of prayer. And just the rarity of the occurrence should make us think twice before we just read over the passage. What he's doing here is significant. He's seeking to communicate something very important to us as he goes away to pray. And what is Matthew trying to communicate to us? Well, I've already led on to it, haven't I? I think what Matthew is trying to point out to us here is that Jesus is exposing himself as one who, in his human nature, in this world, as he seeks to live out the ministry given to him by the Father, he does so in conscious dependence upon his Father. You see, Jesus here shows to us his true humanity. He shows to us, just as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he is one who wrestles with God. 
If you cast your mind forward for just a moment to that episode, you'll remember that in the garden, Jesus does something rather remarkable. He actually asked that the Father would take the cup away from Him. That He would not have to go through, as it were, with the cross. Is there any other way? He pleads with the Father. And yet the Father says, no, it appears. And what does He do? He submits Himself. He submits himself, according to his human nature, be clear here, to his father. And here, we see him exposing his position on this earth as one who is a servant of the father. As one who is dependent upon the father. As one who finds it necessary after being faced with the trials and the tribulations of his earthly ministry, to separate himself off from the crowds and, and do what one commentator says is uh, rejuvenate himself by participating in this private worship, seeking, as it were, uh, this private communion with the Father so that he can find rest and renewal amidst the assessed demands of his public ministry. He's showing his dependence. If you think about that for a moment, it's rather obvious, actually. Why do we pray? Well, I would say maybe fundamentally, the reason why we pray is because we know our need of God. We know our need of God. If we didn't need God, we would have no reason to communicate with him, would we? But we need him. You see, there's a reason, right, why there's no atheist in a foxhole, as they say. When the bullets are flying, when the bombs are dropping around them, they all of a sudden find themselves, as it were, confronted with the reality that perhaps they've never considered before, which is the reality that they are in desperate need of someone to come to their aid. And that knowledge that they suppress and unrighteousness breaks through at that moment, oftentimes, doesn't it? When people are faced with trials and tribulations, they find themselves, whether they do it regularly, whether they even believe in God, they find themselves compelled to pray. Because all of a sudden they realize their dependence. And here Jesus demonstrates that he is truly a man in need of God. Calvin says that Christ's prayer here is a demonstration that for his people, he has become a beggar. He has become a servant. He has become one who is in need. That's remarkable. He exposes himself as being dependent upon the Father. Now, as we talk then about prayer, of course, there's an obvious application to us here. Jesus is modeling what he has already taught his disciples to do, as we've already mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. He's taught us to participate in private prayer. And, of course, the reason for that should be obvious from what I've just said. It's an expression of our dependence upon God. It's an expression of the desire that we have. We need God. We don't just need God for uh, the bread we eat or for uh, the jobs that we have. But we also, particularly as believers, understand deeply that we need communion and fellowship with God in private prayer. 
But simultaneously, as prayerfulness exposes our consciousness of our dependence upon God, so prayerlessness exposes what? Well, it exposes that we don't think we need him. Consider that for a moment. If you read the Puritans, you'll often find them emphasizing the importance of private duties, meditation, private prayer, things like this. And the reason for that, to paraphrase Thomas Brooks in his wonderful little book, The Secret Key to Heaven, on this topic of private prayer, is that private uh, means of grace, or these private means of grace, such as secret prayer, expose to the believer something about their heart. You see, when you're all by yourself and you find yourself crying out to the Lord, you can know in a way that you can't when you participate, for instance, in public prayer, that the reason you're doing so is not for the sake of anybody else around you, but it's because you feel your need of God deep in your being. You understand that you are in need. You are dependent upon Him and you cry out to Him. Out of that feeling of dependence, it exposes that you think rightly, really, about your position as a creature, as a sinner, as a believer. You need the Savior, and yet prayerlessness in a Christian can expose to us great spiritual sicknesses. Look, if you're here this morning and you find... It's very easy to come to public worship, but you find it very hard to pray in private. You may want to consider what that says to you about your own heart. I'm not here to say that private prayer is easy. It is difficult. It's a work. It's something that has to be cultivated. It's something that has to be worked on. It's something that has to be sought after. You need to be intentional about it. But yet, when one is... Prayerless in the closet, it exposes the deep tendency that they have in their heart to ignore their need of the Lord God. Consider that. Consider that. And consider here that even our Savior and His earthly ministry found it necessary to pray to His Father. Now this dependence, this conscious dependence as I've called it here, that Jesus displays for us in the first several verses of this passage stand in stark contrast to what we see following it, doesn't it? Look at what happens here. You see, as he's been praying there alone, verse 24 is a great transition for us. It tells us what has happened to the disciples in the boat. It says, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The, the attention is focused by Matthew back upon the situation of the disciples who have been dismissed by Jesus and sent across the sea. And what he tells us here is that they're not making much progress. And the reason for that is simply this, that the wind is picked up and they're being battered, as it were, by the waves. And they find themselves stranded in a certain way, at least making very slow progress, in the middle of the sea. And remarkably, verse 25 tells us that in the fourth watch of the night, 
He came to them walking on the sea. Now, I would ask you for a moment, friends, is there anything more stark than the contrast that we see here between Jesus on his knees, as it were, for hours, pleading with his father, praying to his father, asking, no doubt, for assistance with his ministry? Is there anything more stark than the contrast that exists between a man who is so conscious of his dependence upon his father and the picture that we have here of one who walks Upon the sea. Now let me be clear here. What Matthew is doing is he is alluding to many, many things from the Old Testament. He's alluding to many texts that we see all the way back, for instance, in the book of Job. He's alluding to Job chapter 9, verse 8. He's alluding to Psalm 77. He's alluding to Isaiah 43. All of these passages teach one important truth. And that is that one way that you know Yahweh is Yahweh, that He is the God who has created the heavens and the earth, who has dominion over all things, who has command over creation, is that He is the only one who is able to walk. Upon the waters. You see, Job 9 says this about God, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. That's just one example, but there are many examples in the Old Testament where we learn that it is an attribute of Yahweh that He is the one, the only one, who walks upon the water. Think about that for a moment. See what comes next. He comes walking to them, and of course the disciples do what I would imagine many of us would do. They're scared. They were terrified, and they said it's a ghost, which makes sense, really, if you think about it. They see a figure who's walking on the water. He seems to be defying, as it were, the rules of the natural world, and their first inclination is, this must be some sort of disembodied spirit. Surely. Because no one who has a body can walk upon the water. And yet, what does Jesus say to them? They cry out in terror. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, there's more here than meets the eye. What does Jesus say? He says, It is I. Now, in Greek, that phrase is ego in me. Now, you can translate it that way. You can translate it as is I, it is I. But probably, and I would say probably uh, with a strong, strong uh, sense here, uh, Matthew is not seeking to communicate that this is Jesus specifically, but he's seeking to communicate something else. Because that phrase that's translated here, it is I, is the same phrase that is translated, for instance, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament, of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am. You see, when Jesus comes walking across the water as he does, and he announces his presence to the disciples, he's not merely saying, it's Jesus, the one you've been with. He's saying, yes, it's Jesus, but he's revealing unto them something even more significant. He's saying, it is me, Yahweh. It is God 
who stands before you. It's the covenant God of Israel. And as the text continues, he he responds to them with this phrase, which is used over and over and over again in the Old Covenant. When God's people fear at the sight of him, he says to them, do not be afraid. You see, what Jesus is communicating to his disciples, really in no uncertain terms, is that he is not only the Messiah, perhaps they already believe that, it's not clear. But he is God himself. I ask you, friends, what can be more stark than the contrast between one who claims divinity and one who claims dependence? What can be more remarkable than a man like that, than a God-man like that? Our larger catechism, very helpfully, I think, in answering question 11, asks the question for us, how is it that we know that the Son and the Spirit are God equal to the Father? And it gives us there several criteria for seeing the divinity of the Son and the Spirit. And they're these. I think they're very helpful. It says that the Scriptures ascribe to them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. Now, it's almost like they were looking at this passage when they created that that question and answer. Because what do we have here? We have here one who is one who is able, as it were, to be referred to by the name of God. We have one here who exhibits the attributes of divinity. We have one here who works the works that only God can work. And we have one here who at the end of the passage will be worshipped, as we'll see, by his disciples. And he doesn't stop it. You note that. He allows it. He receives that worship because it is appropriate for him. You see is revealing to us here who he is in a deeper way than he has up to this point, I think, in the gospel. And he does so by way of these wonderful contrasts. But the text continues here. You see, we've seen, in a sense, the humility of the Savior. We've seen the glory of the Savior. But now as we turn... Uh, to verses 28 and following, we get a glimpse of the grace of the Savior. We see his great patience and compassions, compassion for his people. Now look at what happens here at verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, now you could read that as since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, and walked and came to Jesus. Now, we might be tempted here to see this as one of those classic examples of Petrine impetuousness, but that's not actually what's happening here. You see, Peter is not to be mocked for the way he answers the Lord here. Rather, he is to be emulated. You see, what Peter has seen that perhaps none of the other disciples have seen is he has truly glimpsed here. Who Jesus is. 
And he realizes that the one who is able to walk on the water himself, the one who is able to express this kind of command, this kind of dominion, this kind of authority over creation is able to grant that to his followers. We see great faith here in Peter. Now look at what he does. He, he gets out of the boat and he walks to Jesus. He gets out of the boat like I got out of my car this morning to come into this building. That's remarkable. And he walks upon the water. And he comes to Jesus. But even his glorious, really remarkable faith that we see is not foolproof, is it? Verse 30 says, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now what's happened to Peter here? I mean, imagine the situation. You could almost put yourself in the position of the other disciples who were sitting in the boat. Here, uh, Peter has gone out and met with Jesus, as it were, on the waters. And you might be thinking to yourself, this is the time where you would have more faith than at any other time, right? I mean, you're walking on water. You're standing next to Jesus. You've seen him walk across the sea. You would think that Peter would be able to sit there and say, well, I can rest assured that Jesus can take care of me. And remarkably, what does Peter do? He allows his faith to be overcome with sight. He sees the wind. And he begins to doubt. It'd be easy to criticize Peter here if it wasn't the case that so many of us, I think, know what this is like. How often has it been the case for you, friend, that you find yourself, maybe you think you're doing pretty good in life, you feel like you're, you're walking fairly faithfully. You, your faith is really strong. And then all of a sudden, something happens. And you find yourself questioning. You find yourself doubting. You find the strength of your faith shrinking in light of the circumstances that you see around you. In some ways, we could, we could be anticipating that Jesus would just let him sink. I mean, wow, what do I have to do to show this guy that I'm trustworthy? Here I am standing in the middle of a storm in the ocean, or in the sea rather, and he's doubting me. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't let him sink. He doesn't say, wow, Peter, you really should have done a better job here. You have all the evidence before you. You ought to be able to trust me. No, he doesn't do that. He has compassion on Peter. You know, Peter sees the smallness, or the Lord rather sees the smallness of Peter's faith. And yet he still has mercy. And he brings him back up, as it were. Jesus immediately, the text tells us, reaches out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? If we had time, we could run down all the interesting Old Testament allusions to this passage. You know, we sung one in Psalm 18 a while ago, but there are several others. Psalm 69, for instance, pictures uh, the psalmist, as it were, sinking in the water and crying out for the Lord to pull him back up. Here, Peter uses that same kind of expression, and the Lord pulls him out of the waters 
and brings him into the boat. You see, here we see, in marked contrast with the glory of Christ in the previous verses, the grace, the patience, the compassion of the Savior. That he has mercy even on one like Peter. Even on those like us who are so easily overcome with our doubts of his faithfulness and his abilities. Notice what happens in verse 32. This may be one of my favorite parts of the text. And they got into the boat and the wind ceased. Think about what just happened. Now, Jesus has demonstrated his command over the sea, so that's no surprise to us that Jesus can stop the storm. He's actually done that earlier in the gospel. But you note that as soon as he rescues Peter, as it were, and he steps into the boat, the storm ceases. Why do you think that is? I spent some time thinking about that this week. It makes sense, doesn't it, in a lot of ways? You see, the storm had fulfilled its purposes. What was the storm there for? Well, the storm was really there to magnify the glory of Christ. It was really there to to magnify the, the reality of his command over creation. The fact that he can walk through this vicious wind, these raging waves to this boat, that's Part of it, another part of it, no doubt, is so that Jesus could demonstrate his compassion here on Peter. If it wasn't for the winds that were raging, Peter would have never doubted. And Jesus' compassion for him would have never been shown. But as soon as Jesus has accomplished what he wanted to accomplish, the storm is gone. Now, friends... Let's apply that to ourselves for just a moment. How often have we found ourselves in the midst of trouble in this world and found ourselves asking the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is the rain pouring down? Why are the winds blowing? Why are the waves raging against me? Why are all these things coming upon me? Why is there a storm at this very moment? And this passage teaches us, I think, in large measure why those things happen. Because in those storms of life, in those difficulties, in those moments of desperation, in those moments of discouragement, of depression, what do we learn about God? We learn His compassion. We learn His goodness. We learn that He will not abandon us. Jesus got into the boat and the storm ceased. Friends, the storm was Jesus' storm. And it was there to do what Jesus wanted to do. And when it had fulfilled its obligation, it went away. That's an important lesson for us to learn. God's providence, it always works together for our good, doesn't it? It's hard to believe that, but it's true nonetheless. And when you doubt it, just look at this storm. And the storm ceases and the apostles, or the disciples rather, what do they do? 
Well, they respond really the only way they can respond with what's happened before them, isn't it? They worship him. You know, the Gospel of Mark tells us that up to this point, they weren't really tracking. You know, they understood that Jesus was something special. Perhaps they understood he was the Messiah. But they had not yet come to understand who he truly was. But here, as Matthew, as I've already mentioned, has been painting this picture for us. And as Jesus first painted the picture for them. As they see all of these various activities, these attributes that Jesus is displaying before them. They come to the point where the only thing they can possibly do, confronted with his dependence, yes, but also confronted with his command and his compassion. There's only one way for them to respond and they have to do it. And it's worship. They fall down before him. And they confess that truly this is the Son of God. Friends, this morning as we look upon this glorious picture that he has painted for us, we need to do the same thing. As we look upon all of these wonderful things that Jesus has done, all these attributes that he exhibits, we should be. Uh, forced, as it were, to recognize who it is that we're looking at here in the text. We're looking at the eternal Son of God. The one who came to this earth, who, as the hymn said just a few moments ago, was veiled, as it were, with our mortality, but nonetheless was And still remains the eternal Son of God. We are looking at God become man for sinners such as us. Friends, we must fall down at his feet. It's the only appropriate response. Matthew has displayed for us here. By Jesus' conscious dependence upon his Father, his humanity. He's displayed for us in his command over his creation, his glory. And he's displayed for us wonderfully in the compassion that he shows for Peter, his grace towards his people. And friends, as we look at this passage, we see, as it were, a multifaceted diamond being shown forth to us. And it's almost as if... Matthew is rotating it so that we can see it from every angle and we can understand the depth and the breadth of the Savior. We can understand his glory and his grace and we can rejoice in that this morning. That's, friends, what we must do. We must go forth from here conscious that we have one who intercedes even now for us as he interceded for his people while he was on the earth. One who demonstrated for us what it meant to truly be a servant who served God with all of his heart fully. One who showed forth his love and his mercy towards his people by becoming one of us for our sake. We can go forth from here trusting that we have a Savior who is in control of all things. And we can go forth from here trusting, friends, that we have a Savior who is eternally compassionate towards his people. And we can rejoice in that. We can take heart in that. That's our response this morning 
we must acknowledge him and worship him. For truly he is the son of God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that as we look by faith upon the Savior and we see his glorious works in this world, we see his humiliation, we see a glimpse of his glory, we see the power of his grace. Father, we thank you that as we gaze upon him by faith, we do so in anticipation that the day will come where we will see him with our eyes and we will be like him. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us all, that you would give us all an earnest desire for that moment, for that time, when we will look upon our Savior and we will see in him your glory and your goodness for your people. We pray, Father, now that you would bind up our wounds and that you would fill our hearts with affection for you. We pray, deepen our communion with you this day and help us to worship you the rest of it in spirit and in truth and with reverence and awe for the glory of Christ and for the good of his church and his people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.